This is Teeming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work work together. I'm Carlos Valdez Depani, your host. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people who share my passion for collaboration. In Teeming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. Welcome back, brilliant listeners, to a long overdue episode of Teeming with Ideas. And I am joined today by Andrew Fox, who is speaking to us from Down Under. Where are you, Andrew? Tell folks. Carlos, thanks for having me. Yes, I'm in uh, not so sunny Australia at the moment, living in a small country town between Melbourne and Sydney. I was born in England and joined Mars in the early to mid-90s. And then I emigrated to Australia with my wife. No family out here, just fell in love with it as part of a honeymoon and said, let's go and start an adventure in Australia. And when the immigration papers came through and said, you've been accepted, I shook hands with Mars in a very amicable way and flew off to the other side of the planet. A couple of years working for a law firm, heading up L&D and leadership for the law firm, which was a real culture shift from working for an FMCG company before. Fate conspired to bring me back to the mothership and I rejoined Mars Inc. in 2001 out in Australia. And since then, I've done a myriad of roles. But after about a year or so in sales, I was tapped on the show and said, hey, you're a bit of a troublemaker come and make trouble with us in HR and we want someone to shake things up a bit. Predominantly being a a salesman when I first started, I wasn't a great salesman. I noticed very quickly that I tried really hard and got average results at best. I wasn't bad enough to get fired, but I wasn't good enough to really go anywhere. Then I attended some training programs and I couldn't believe how cool the job looked on the other side of the desk, the guy running the training sessions. I thought, wow, maybe I could go over the desk and do that side of the equation. And when I got the chance to do that in uh, 96, I fell in love with it and I didn't seem to be working half as hard and I was getting twice as good feedback. So that was my first little insight of right person, right role. And I think we'll come back to that when we talk about team configuration and untapping that potential. And then I got a global job heading up senior leader development. So anyone at director level and above at Mars Inc., basically, what are we doing in development for leadership for those guys? And I love that job. Then I got a job to look after the leadership college for a couple of years. I took over in February and COVID hit in March. That was an interesting two-year experience. And then finally, back to uh, the senior leader program. I did a lot of work with our general manager population. And general managers at Mars are like mini CEOs. They head up a business in a geography. I'm starting my third week now in a sabbatical. I've shaken hands with Mars. I'm on a six-month sabbatical. And then come October of this year, I'll reassess what what I want to do, if anything. So you've found me in a very relaxed frame of mind. What's the earliest really positive experience you have of being a member of a team? And what was it about it that made it so spectacular? Spectacular is a high bar, but it's a strong one. And it should be. No, I think it's good to have those. You need those really powerful words to force you to prioritize and cut through the clutter and the sameness. I've been blessed. I haven't been on many, if any, bad teams. In my entire career, I've had two line managers that have been subpar out of probably 20. So I've had a pretty good hit rate and I'm blessed to experience that. That first experience is the one that sticks with you, isn't it? So for me, it would have been when I stepped out of sales that first time, when I knew I was trying really hard, but quite frankly, wasn't going to go anywhere. And I got that chance to go and work for a guy, a guy called John Williams. He headed up the UK sales training team, right? I was never turned on by chasing the number. The cyclical nature never did anything for me. And people around me loved that part of the job. It just wasn't something that resonated with me. But connecting with people, making them better versions of themselves was what I loved. But when I jumped across that desk 
to get a chance to, to run some sales training. Yes, you talk sales, but you also talk presentation, negotiation, all those soft skills that people would term. I remember walking into that team, everyone on that team really wanted to be there. This was a specialist team. Their aspiration was to be on it and work in that space. And as soon as you got that group of like-minded people that all wanted to be there, and quite frankly, they were good at what they did as well, you had that perfect storm. And on top of that, you had a line manager. I always remember it. He'd have a conversation with you over coffee, and you'd think you were just having a chat about the day. And you'd walk away from that chat, and you suddenly have this message in your head saying, I think I want to go and do that. And, and, and he wasn't some kind of uh, stage magician, the hypnosis, right? It, this was a guy that was, as I found out, a great coach. And he would ask those right questions for you to unlock what you wanted to do next and how you wanted to go about doing it if you were stuck. He was incredibly kind. He cared about you as an individual. And I can give multiple examples of how he demonstrated that for me. And I thought, wow, this guy cares about me. I'll walk over a broken glass for him. And I've got a team that love what they do. For those that use the engagement lens, super high engagement. They were right people in right roles, doing work that was meaningful to them and making a difference. And for me, that was the lasting memory of a great team, that early experience when I jumped across into a thing that was a far better fit for me. One of my sort of tenets of was, have you got the right people on the team and are they in the right roles so they can really do the most good? Uh, that was something that sticks with me. Having people who want to be there is so foundational to a great team. If I look at patterns, another team when I first got brought out of sales back in Australia, that team where they said, you're going to work on all these projects, I jumped in and I looked around. They weren't just good at what they did. They all had a good name, highly regarded within the business. And I'm now in a team with all these highly regarded stars. They were really good at making a difference and all feeding off each other and being very, very supportive. But there was no competition within that team. I think that was another thing that stood out. And again, another common thing, the leader, the line manager, set in that environment, managing you through those things, ensuring that you've got the right fit of people on the team. We've all been on teams where we've had great work, but it only takes one noisy wheel to start to- Well, let's go there. Unravel. Yeah, yeah, let's go there. So often, any of my listeners would say, yeah, but there's, there's, a, there's always a jerk. <laughs> what do they say? If everyone you meet in life's a jerk, the chances are you're the jerk. <laughs> I think that's the expression. <laughs> so note to the listeners, if you find that happening a lot, you're either very unlucky or you're the problem. So a bit of self-awareness for you. Hold up the ugly mirror and embrace it. <laughs> Probably true. What do you do with that jerk? I would break that down into slightly more granularity. And what if that jerk's the line manager? Okay, let's get there. Let's talk about jerks appear and jerks the boss. I've interviewed a lot of the senior presidents over the last few years about lessons learned and what are they? One of our global presidents said, look, Foxy, one of the biggest uh, learnings I ever had was I didn't act fast enough when I inherited the team, I kept trying to turn it around and cut more slack for these certain individuals. And in hindsight, I wish I'd acted earlier. And that is a common thing I hear from many, many of our general managers. And sometimes that individual is thankful when you tap them on the show and say, look, this isn't working out because they know it and they're just not living up to it. And it's, it's heartbreaking to see someone drive themselves into the ground into a role and they're never going to flourish in. How long do you hang on to someone to keep trying to turn them around before you say it's probably more humane for everyone involved to to cut ties and find something else for them to do where they maybe are a better fit. And then how they go about doing it. Often when we have jerks, it's not because they can't do the job very well. Often people that can do the job, they just do it in a really shitty way and they treat people poorly whilst doing it. It's a behavioral element rather than a competence element, I would argue. But I'll start with my own team. I had a pretty good team across Asia Pack, and I had one person that was competent, very competent, did the job well, had a very complex geography, 
And quite frankly, it was really hard to replace. Often it is the ones that are hard to replace because that's why you tolerate it because you offset it against the fact that they're hard to replace. I've had a few other members of the team up to me saying, I can't work with her anymore. And I'm thinking, oh, I kind of get it. She's hard work. By that point, I'd had hundreds of people in my teams across the years and I couldn't work out what was going on with this. I could not read this person. I knew that she rubbed everyone up the wrong way, but the customers loved her because she worked her ass off. She delivered. She was relentless in that work, but she wasn't a team player in any part of the definition. She was just about, I'm going to do what I need to do to get my job done. And quite frankly, screw the rest of you if you get in my way. I, I don't really care about that. And so I had this tough equation. I can't let this geography hemorrhage by letting her go, but equally... I've got to try and protect the rest of the team from her so that she doesn't bring the team down whilst we find a solution. And in hindsight, I should have gone earlier because that one person can erode the engagement of other team members. They don't want to work or the tone of the room changes when they come in. That's a slow burner. It erodes maybe 5% off of things around the edges, but across another eight people in the team, you're eroding 40% of impact. That was on my own team where I, I didn't act fast enough. So interesting. Let me just check this. You were hesitant to talk to this person, to have that courageous conversation. But it sounds like when you did it, you learned this person's not happy anyway. They weren't happy in their role. I'd love to say in Hollywood style, it was that one conversation, suddenly the whole world changed. She said, look what I'm doing. I'm getting my customers love me. I said, yes, they do love you and you're doing great work with them. But the environment, the wreckage you're leaving behind you I'm having to deal with, and that's not acceptable. So that it was all about the how and not the what in that person. When you look at jerks, it's the how, not the what, and the cultural fit, isn't it? All right. So that was what you did as as a manager. So if you and I are on a team together, and you're just it, you're just a jerk. What have you done when you've been on a team with a difficult personality? What's the advice to a team member in terms of dealing with that difficult person? So that's one example, but it's not a peer of mine. I'm not proud of it. My initial response was. For the love of God, guys, if you've got some interpersonal glitches with this lady, I said, sort it out amongst yourselves. You're paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You're big grown-ups. You're professionals. It's in Australian dollars. So that's about 50000 a year in, in real money. <laughs> <laughs> sort this out yourselves. You work in this area. I don't need to be the parent. This is not a parent-child relationship. You know, I thought I was being very empowering and all these kind of things. I don't think it went down particularly well in hindsight. And the first point, of course, can they sort it out themselves or can you sort it out yourselves? Do you need to triangulate through a line manager? Or it, it, I think that's your final kind of point of call if you can't seek resolution yourself. One thing I'm quite good at is finding that common ground with all different shapes and sizes of people, culturally, politically, whatever those prickly edges might be that, offend others, I can invariably find a connection with those people. Over those 20 or so teams, I don't think I can think of a peer that was a jerk that I've not been able to work with. Indeed, I can think of two examples where the line manager was the jerk and I was on a team. So it's a different dynamic at play there when you've got a line manager. And yeah. And let's talk about the manager who's a jerk, managing up. Absolutely. Managing up, exactly. And, And in some really tough cases, it becomes managing around, right? Managing around them up to another higher level because you haven't managed to solve it within your immediate sphere of control. Two examples. One was that kind of classic looking down from above and pointing the finger and ruling by fear type role. That didn't work for me at all. Very counter to my own style. To that point, I said, this line manager is an ass and why do I want to work for him? I, I just don't know how this guy's got away with this kind of behavior for so long. So that was one example. The other one was a guy who was very nice to talk with, very 
congenial, but completely hopeless. There was no structure. There was no clarity of what you're supposed to be doing. Some of the more senior members of that team were saying, we're going to have to go above him because this isn't working for us. And we're going to have to report this to HR and maybe the ombudsman or whatever, because this can't go on. We can't keep being just left to do our own thing. It's negligence. So there was two examples there of where the leader was a jerk for different reasons. One was a nice guy that just had no clue, quite frankly, and didn't really care that much. The other one just had a bit of a mean streak to them and would like would like to pick on people and and demonstrate their inadequacies in front of the wider team, which is pretty poor. What do you do? Is there a way to succeed with that going on? It's, it's really hard. I think the natural human reaction is you try and find a way to work around it. You say, well, what work can I do that doesn't require too much input from that individual? How do I keep my own career moving and still keep kicking goals despite this person, not because of them? And, that, and that's, you know, that's, that's heartbreaking. A line manager has a bigger influence and impact on your health and well-being than your GP. So let's just sit with that for a second. Your general practitioner, your doctor, you spend so much time at work. If that person lacks care, lacks consideration, has an axe to grind. So it's, it's not just indifference. It's actually going out of the way to make your life difficult. That will manifest itself, not just at work, but every time you leave work, every time you're thinking about going back to work, you get filled with that sense of dread and, and reluctance. It's horrible, right? And I really feel no one should have to suffer that. I, so look, I get this email every day with a variety of articles on the subject of leadership teams, organization effectiveness. And I, I, there was a link to an article in one of the better known business journals out there it was about what are the most effective techniques for a manager with their team. And Foxy, the first deep insight in this very famous journal was put people first. Was it 40 years ago I first heard that? Maybe 50 years ago? Why do we keep having to teach the same lessons? The world still has a problem with getting people in leadership positions who know how to deal with people. Absolutely. And sometimes it's because they don't know any different. So they're not getting the development that they need to show them how we want you to lead. So that, I think that's a big part of it. Sometimes it's the accountability within the system. I might work for you and I might have given you feedback that says you're a four out of 10, not an eight out of 10, but no one does anything about it. It just sits as a four out of 10 in a file somewhere. So how do we close that loop? Their behavior is what's got them there and therefore they keep doing it. And so I mean, until someone calls them on it, until someone says culturally, this isn't how we do things, they sometimes don't realize. Now, some are able to embrace change and, and thank you for it. Others just exit stage left because they're not able to or choose not to do it. I'm glad you picked up on it. This idea of how the hell can you pick up something from a cutting edge, leading thought leader, and it tells you something that you knew about, read about, and have been practicing for 40 years. And part of the challenge, I think, is that there are so many models and approaches and shiny objects out there that people are trying to peddle to organizations that everyone wants to be at the cutting edge. And often it's those things that aren't sexy, those fundamental things that will not change. They're part of human nature. The organizations take their eye off the ball for a while, and then it starts to drop off. And then it's only when the, the dashboards start to show an organizational problem in terms of metrics that they start to think, hang on, we've lost the plot here. We've let go of those basic things that made people good leaders or good associates in the past. And I think that's a real risk because we've done a lot of analysis recently. We did a massive sweep of all the data we had on our leaders. And I can share this, I think. For an organization that prides itself on being very people, relationship-oriented, they're not great at process, they're not good at following command and control, it's all decentralized, but they're wonderful people, people, they they're friendly, they get on, they connect well, et cetera, right? And yet this data painted a very different picture that said, actually, your core areas of opportunity are 
empathy, listening within empathy, talent development. So I think this is completely different to what I was expecting. Performance management. We had our own people saying, we just need you to manage performance better. And this is our people telling our leaders this. And so I think the data challenges our stereotypes of what we think we're good at. And that was a good outcome for me. Everything went to 12-inch Dell screens and everything was done remotely. And people sat in their rooms for two years and never left. They lacked managers that cared about you, cared about your family, what was going on in your life outside of work and how they could help you be better inside of work. Right. I'd say in a way, the pandemic and this enforced remote work brought to the surface something that was there anyway, that human-centered leadership. I talked to one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked for, and, and I asked her, what did you learn? And she said, you know, it's remarkably simple. I learned that the first thing I have to ask people when I get them on video meeting is, how are you doing? Not just, how are your projects going? Or are you on track to get that job finished? No, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Wouldn't you love that to be something that when we get back face-to-face, that's the first question we ask? Yeah, even before pandemic, it should have been the questions we should have asked people. Showing an interest in your team members as human beings first. If you, I mean, I don't want to jump into a call talking to you about a project X or presentation Y when I haven't asked, how are you and the family doing? Because that foundational thing, if that's screwed or crumbling, everything else will fall over as a result. And so A, it's the right thing to do anyway. And B, from a purely, you know, cold calculated, how do I improve performance perspective? It's essential because otherwise, if that foundation isn't there and people don't feel that you care about them and will go into bat for them and have their back and all those kind of cliches, if people don't believe that about you, uh, then they're less likely to go those extra yards and be resilient for you when you need them to be. You mentioned earlier the Q12, that engagement survey that Mars uses, and so do many, many others. One of the statements in there you're asked to rate is somebody at work seems to care about me. When it's my manager, it seems doubly powerful to me. Absolutely. And people say to me, oh, but hang on, people are only engaged when performance is good. It doesn't performance drive engagement. And I said, hang on, stop for a second. Just take a chill pill. Stop trying to be the smartest guy in the room because you're not. Let's just think about this. I said, I will tell you categorically over a 19-year period, the leaders we have today in our organization are so much better, so much better than they were pre-engagement. The culture of the organization is this stuff really matters and you're not going to be a leader unless you can embrace it. And so I think that is a fundamental shift that I've seen. And I have to believe that that commitment to measurable accountability has a lot to do with it. I'm out of Mars four years. I'm seeing its praises all the time. But when you told me this recent research that had been done to look at what Mars still needed to do to get line managers even stronger, good on you for asking the question. Even after 20 years of engagement. Data has challenged our internal bias. So I do think you need that kind of accountability woven into the fabric. So metrics really help keep that thing alive. Common language is important. So leaders think, oh, I didn't know how to refer to that. But now I've got this way of compartmentalizing it and seeing it. Now I can zoom in and say, that's the thing I'm not doing at the moment. And I need to do more of it. And it gives you that framework and language to talk about these things. Which we know is important. You've read about that study about the blue sky. Did you hear about this? The Ulysses, 4,000 years old book. They looked at the number of times that colors were mentioned in this massive ancient Greek text. And they found that red was measured 25 times and brown and all these things. But blue didn't come up at all. And then they looked at other ancient texts around the world of a similar period. And again, apart from Egyptian texts, blue never showed up ever. 
in any of these texts. Why is that? If you don't have a word for something, you can't see it. They found this small tribe in Africa where they have about 13 words for green. They have no word for blue in their culture. They had these warriors sat there with headphones on looking at laptop screens out in the middle of this station. And they put up all these squares and they said, which ones of these squares are blue? And you and I would look at these set of squares and you'd say, well, it's clearly the top right one. It's much bluer than all the others. These guys would agonize for three to four minutes and some would get it and it was completely random. And then they put up a slide, tell us the one that's the darkest green. And it was all green. You and I would look at it thinking, they look the bloody same. And yet within about 10 seconds, these guys would say, that's the greenest one. What it showed amazingly was because they had all these words for green, they could spot nuances in the physical sense, whereas they couldn't see blue and they couldn't pick it out. Why do I go down this weird, wacky story? Because if you don't have that kind of construct, that language where people can identify something and name it and label it, it's very hard to be aware of it and notice it. And it's very hard to do anything about it. If you want to change a culture, if you want to lead a movement to get people marching in a particular way, Unique language is really important. There's a neuro link. So you don't see stuff. You're not aware of stuff if you don't have a word for it. Going all the way back to that story you told about the person you were trying to deal with who was a jerk. And if there weren't consequences for the behavior, there's going to be no change. That's right. How much do you tolerate before you act? And people always tell themselves stories, oh, I'll give it another week. It will settle itself. Conflict's another one. Oh, it's probably me. We'll just let it run. And the lesson that I've learned from this is it pays with respect, confront the issue there and have the conversation, raise awareness. Sometimes the other person is totally unaware of the impact they're having. And just by flicking that switch, you can make life easier for yourself and your peers within that environment. Now, people don't do it often because they're feared, oh, if I do that and I upset them, it's going to go 10 times worse. And the numbers just don't back that up. Invariably, you'll make things better. And if things get worse, then guess what? You bring it to a head anyway. So I think, I mean, the reason we don't engage in conflict, we often fear what the other person's reaction will be. Behind that, there's another more important fear, which is the fear that I can't handle it. It's a lack of a sense of courage. People are actually way more courageous than they know. In my head, I always remember bravery was the things that you would do like that. And courage was being afraid, but still doing it anyway. That was the distinction. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's okay to feel afraid or uncertain about something. And, and people catastrophize, don't they, in their mind, oh, it's going to be the extreme on the spectrum, and it invariably doesn't become that extreme. Put yourself in the shoes. If someone came to you and told you something out of left field, you might be a bit shocked. You might be a bit, oh, bloody hell, really? That's what they think? But you, ultimately, you'd be quite thankful that you knew what was going on rather than it just going on behind the scenes and you being oblivious to it. So I think if you apply that thinking, we're mostly wired the same way as human beings, right? So if that's the case, trust yourself, be courageous. It might feel a bit uneasy. Do it anyway. That circle of courage will gradually grow as you do it and realize things aren't that bad. You do it more and more. But someone said to me, look, if you're going to get in a scrape over something, Foxy, or if you're going to bring that to a head with Carlos, you need to weigh it up very quickly. Is it small enough for you to be able to manage and is it big enough to make a difference? And if it doesn't tick those two boxes, then let it go. When I say let it go, you have to let it go and move on. You can't just keep ruminating and going back to it. All right. Listen, thank you for taking this time with me. <laughs> it's been terrific having you on the show. You're most welcome. Keep up the good work, my friend. Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John Wallerick, for the music. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teaming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com. 
questions, click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teeming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdepena.com forward slash podcast dash contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening and keep on teeming with ideas.